Hey, good morning. Hey, how are you guys today? You doing okay? Good, uh, good, good. Um, well, my name is Ron. If, uh, if we haven't got to meet before, um, hello. I'm a pastor out in California, but I was on staff here for, for a few years and uh, just get to be back every once in a while. And so it's good to be with you today. Um, I got a question for you, though, as we start. Who is the most attractive person that you know? Attractive person that you know. Husbands. If you're not saying your wife, you are in trouble. Who's the most attractive person that you know? I mean, you can look around and there's all sorts of options, right? I was speaking at a junior high camp and they're just starting to wake up to this whole thing. So you watch, you know, girls all in chapel and a boy walks in that they like and they're, oh, look at him, look at him, look at him. Guys, they do the same thing. They just don't have the language for it. Guys, they're all sitting there, something walks in that they like and they just go, <laughs> who's the most attractive person that you know? Okay, but now I don't want you to think in terms of the physical. Who's the most attractive person that you know when it comes to personality? When it comes to just something maybe kind of indescribable that you're just really drawn to. There's something about their heart, there's something about their character that's just winsome, it's dynamic. That's what's so attractive about them. And you can't just help to love those chances to be around them. Now who's the most attractive person that you know? Your mom. God bless you. Is your mom here? Is that why you're saying that? No, that's great. Like some of you, you were blessed with a mom or a dad that, that you were just magnetically drawn to. Hopefully that's happening um, at home with your spouse. It's not your kids because you usually hate your kids if you're not. I'm just kidding. No, but I mean, you, you just get drawn to people by, by the way that they are. When it comes to being a follower of Jesus, I think we're called to be the most attractive, dynamic, winsome, magnetic people on the planet. I really believe that. It's kind of it's like the moon. You're familiar with the moon? Okay, yeah, there's, there it is. I mean, right, this is just a big, huge object that hangs up in the sky, and you know it's just a big chunk of rock, you know, right, though, that it has no light in and of itself. Until the sun comes out and reflects the light off the moon, then, then we get to see just how beautiful the moon is. But only when the sun comes out does it reflect that light off, and then we, we are able to see how spectacular it is. You and I are a lot like the moon. We, we, we just have the ability to reflect the light of the sun, the S-O-N, Jesus, not the S-U-N. And we've got the opportunity. Without him, we're really just nothing. But with him, we've got the opportunity to be the moon and reflect the light of Jesus wherever we go. And that should be a thing of beauty. It should be a thing that people are really drawn to instead of repulsive. And I think it's at the heart of what Paul is talking about in the passage that we're going to look at this morning from Colossians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, why don't you open up there to Colossians chapter 4. It's the last chapter in this book. 
And if you're not real familiar where Colossians is, if you go to the end of your Bible um, and, and then work back to the left, you'll hit this book of Colossians. Been going through this series by the book, some glimpses of these powerful passages in this book called Colossians. It's a letter actually that Paul wrote to the believers that were at this time in the city of Colossae. And uh, what's going on in this city and this community of believers actually was that there was some bad teaching that was creeping in. And there was some religious mixing that was going on. They were kind of taking, oh, what we like about this religion and blend it with what we like about this one. They were finding substitutes for Jesus. And so in the first half of this letter, Paul has been saying, you can't substitute Jesus. There is no substitute for Jesus. He is supreme over all. He is sufficient for all. He is your all in all. And for two chapters, he unpacks the the real nature of Jesus Christ. He's getting them back to knowing who the real Jesus actually is. And, And in the back half of this letter, He says, okay, now that I've brought you back to who the real Jesus is, now I need you to go show the world what the real Jesus looks like. And so you need to live in a certain way and you need to act in a certain way. You need to speak in a certain way that that shows the world what the real Jesus is like. And in some of these final thoughts as he's wrapping this letter up, He just says, remember, in chapter four, verse two, he says, you gotta be praying. Pray for each other. Pray for me, he said. Because at this time that Paul was writing this letter to these believers, he was actually in prison when he was writing this letter. He he was under house arrest. And, And so he was very aware. These aren't the best of circumstances. And he's saying, pray for me. Remember me in in my chains. Pray for me right now. Because he says this, pray for me to have an opportunity that I would be able to proclaim who Jesus really is. Even when he's in prison. Even when he's under house arrest. That's what's going through his mind is, this is an opportunity. Maybe over this shoulder, the, the, the soldier that's right here, Maybe this is someone that is trying to get a glimpse of of what Jesus is like. It's that whole cliche thing of you're the only Jesus that somebody knows. So when they look at you, what what do they see? You're you're the only Bible that somebody may ever read. So when they look at you, what do they they see? Paul's sitting there writing this letter under house arrest. And he's going, okay, pray for me. Pray that I would have an opportunity to share what Jesus is like and that when I do it, it would be clear. And then he says, I'm praying the same thing for you. And in chapter four, verse five, he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders because there's all sorts of moments, all sorts of opportunities for you to show people what Jesus is like. And if you're burdened at all with the reality that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there there is eternity, and people are all headed one direction or the other, if that reality burdens you at all, if it motivates you at all to live out the life of Jesus so that they may catch who Jesus is, 
and want to commit their life to him, then be wise with outsiders. Think about what you're doing. Think about how you're acting. Think about what what things that you say when you're around people that that don't know him. It's really, really important. He, He goes on to say, make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every moment. It might be at work for you. It might be, I don't know, it may even be at home. It just might be in relationships that come across your path. But you've got the radar up and on that every moment, every conversation is an opportunity for me to live out the life of Jesus, to show the real Jesus to to a watching world. By the time he gets them on this point here, he just says, this is the best way to do it. Verse six, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that everyone, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Salt in their day was preservative to food and nature, and it was also flavorful. Our words should should be words that preserve people and restore people instead of rip them to shreds. The series called Censored coming up starting in just a couple of weeks here, we'll we'll take that and, and run and unpack it even further. But that our language would also be full of grace and mercy because that's it. Our words are so incredibly powerful. They're the most powerful weapon that you have at your disposal. And you can use them to do tremendous harm or you can also use it to bring hope and healing and restoration to the lives of people. Here, here's what I think. I, I believe that as followers of Jesus, like we, we need to be attractive people. I'm gonna give you four game-changing phrases this morning. These four game-changing phrases that are things that you could literally say. They also just could be attitudes that you embrace. That if you speak these words, either literally or, or in attitude to people, they'll, they'll change the game in making you an, a more attractive person, but also reflect a whole lot what Jesus is like. People will be drawn to you if you possess these attitudes, if you say these words to people. But you'll also be giving people a very, very beautiful, powerful picture of what Jesus is like if you embrace these four phrases in your life. You use them either literally or just get the heart behind these words and live it out. Because there's a watching world that needs to see Jesus. There's no substitute for him. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. First phrase, I'm sorry. Everybody say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's such a powerful phrase. The words, I'm sorry, two very, very powerful words. You know right now that that as you're thinking about it, there's a high likelihood with a group this size that, that it would bring tremendous healing to a relationship if you could just hear those words, I'm sorry, from somebody that you're thinking of. And maybe it's been recent, maybe it's been way back in your past, but you just know that if you could just hear those words, gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry, it would change the game. You also might be sitting there thinking, I'm probably actually the one that needs to say I'm sorry for something. 
And I don't know what it is, but it's been difficult in getting me to that point where I, I can say it. I mean, this is simple. This, is, this isn't rocket science. But these powerful words that you maybe learned as a child and were forced to say by your parents to your siblings after you poked them in the eye. <laughs> really, it's more than just words because what's, what's behind I'm sorry is humility. The words I'm sorry have humility written all over them. Humble people know that they're not the center of the universe. Prideful people, though, they think the world revolves around them. And, and humility is at the core of these words, I'm sorry. Paul, in writing his letter to the Philippians, encourages them in humility and just says, this is so important for, for the family of God to be people of humility. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. The reality is none of you are better than anybody else. But what if you treated other people as if they were? You think that would change the game? And then he goes on to say, he says, you need to have the same attitude in yourself that Jesus had. He said, who? who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate model of humility, of servant humility. And his humility brought him to the cross if anybody had a right to, to just opt out, it, it was him being very nature God. But he humbled himself and he became obedient to death on a cross. And he hung there, not because he himself was guilty, not because he himself needed to say, I I'm sorry for anything, but this is the crazy part about it. Jesus hung on that cross to functionally say, I'm sorry on your behalf and on my behalf. He hung on the cross to say, I I'm sorry on behalf of all humankind. Father, I'm saying sorry for the people that I love. Would you forgive them? You see, humility's got such power. If you look around our world, I mean, the people that you're thinking of that are probably the most winsome, dynamic, magnetic personalities that you're really attracted to, I, I would imagine that they're pretty humble people. And they also look and act a whole lot like Jesus. Who, who did you need to say I'm sorry to? Who do you just need to maybe just get over your pride and express an attitude of humility to? It's work, it's, it's marriage, it's whatever. You do that, it brings real healing in those moments as you confess to one another your, your sins that you might be healed, as James 5 says. As Romans 12 says, that you were to live peaceably with all people as far as it depends on you. Humble yourself. Use those words, use that attitude. You, you'll look a whole lot like Jesus. You'll be incredibly attractive. Everybody say, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. Second phrase, very powerful game changer that looks a whole lot like Jesus and I think makes you really attractive. I forgive you. Everybody say, I forgive you. I forgive you, yeah. I forgive you. If, if I'm sorry has humility written all over it, then I forgive you has Jesus written all over it. I honestly, I don't know if there's anything more powerful, more, more beautiful than those words, more Christ-like than those words to say, I, I forgive you. Whether, whether people deserve that or not, whether they've asked for forgiveness or not, to be able to walk into somebody's life that has harmed you, hurt you, and say, I, I forgive you. Now that, that may take significant amount of time. Several years ago, I sat right on this stage next to a former Miss Arizona who had been raped during her years in college. And she stood on this very stage and actually said the words, if they ever found the guy who did that to me, because of what my God's done for me, I believe that if I were to meet him today, I would actually be able to look him in the eye and say, I forgive you. That, that, that honestly, that, that, that blows my mind. Now, does that mean that she's gonna trust him, that she wants to be in a relationship with him, that that should be a wise, no way. And, and you and I both know that when we, when we withhold forgiveness from other people, it doesn't just hurt them. It also hurts us. We carry an awful lot of emotional weight when we withhold forgiveness from other people. And if somebody does muster the humility to come and just say, I'm sorry. If Jesus has been quick to forgive us, I mean, who are we to withhold that from somebody else? Now I get it, I mean, I've been hurt in, in some very deep ways and that can take time and you gotta work through that and process through that. And if they haven't even ever come, well, Jesus still invited you to the freedom of offering forgiveness despite the fact that somebody has asked for it. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends. It would probably be unwise in some cases to dive back into an unhealthy relationship that way but you can release them and release yourself from the burden by these powerful words and this powerful attitude that just says, I forgive you. That Jesus on the cross displayed so powerfully and also in his interaction with people. It's an adulterous woman caught in the act of adultery that they pull out into public and they circle up around her ready to throw rocks at this poor woman to, to kill her, to stone her. And Jesus steps in on her behalf and calms the crowd down and says, wait, 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 wait a minute. Any one of you that has never sinned, that's never made a mistake, go ahead and throw the first rock. And one by one, they start dropping the rocks and they leave. And pretty soon there's nobody left except this woman and Jesus. And he turns to her and says, so who's left to condemn you? And she says, no one. And he looks at her and he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Translated, I forgive you. It's a prostitute that busts into a house party full of Pharisees. 
that Jesus has been invited to. And she comes on unannounced, uninvited, and she just barges into the household, this prostitute with a whole bunch of religious elite. And she's an absolute mess. She is weeping and she comes to the feet of Jesus and just plops herself down at the feet of Jesus and opens her expensive jar of perfume and begins to pour them over his feet. And her tears fall out of her eyes and mix with the perfume on the feet of Jesus. And she uses her hair, her glory, to wipe up and clean the feet of this Jesus that she loves. A prostitute, very undignified, doing this to Jesus. And the Pharisees don't know what to make of it, and so Jesus tells a story. He says, there's a guy that lends money to two guys. He lends 150 bucks and another 500 bucks. Neither of them are able to pay the guy back, and so he forgives the debt of both of them, and he says, which one do you think was more thankful that their debt was forgiven? And one of the Pharisees says, probably the guy who owed him 500, because he owed him more. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. He said, it's the same thing with this woman. This woman's sins, who are many, have been forgiven. And because she has been forgiven much, she loves much. And that's in stark contrast for many of you Pharisees. You feel like you've not been forgiven. You don't need to be forgiven. You're perfect. You're great. And I can see it in the way that you withhold love. Jesus turns to the woman, he says, I, I forgive you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. There, there's direct proportion here. There's a correlation. The more that you recognize what you have been forgiven, the more that you are freed to love. And so I just, I, I want to invite you to this free experience of being generous with your love. And it may come just with these words of I forgive you. Knowing that you have been forgiven considerable amounts, if you have this relationship with God through Jesus, you've been forgiven all. And now you, you get the exciting privilege of being able to forgive others and at least express this attitude of grace and mercy that will make you so attractive and reflect who Jesus is in the grandest of ways. I forgive you. Everybody say, I forgive you. Third phrase. I love this one. I believe in you. I believe in you. This is a great phrase, I believe in you. Because that phrase and an attitude behind that phrase is all about speaking hope into the lives of people. I believe in you. It says, I believe more in what you could be than what you have been. And don't we all need someone to come alongside us at some point in our life? that either says those words or gives that attitude to us that just says, I believe way more in the future of you, maybe even than you do. And I know God does, 
God has got something new for your tomorrow and he's not defining you by your past. He's not forced you to carry like a heavy backpack all of your previous mistakes or, or your shortcomings or things that you don't care for yourself. Gosh, I'm so thankful for people in my past that have done this. I didn't used to be this awesome. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't used to look like this either. I look like Howie Mandel and Voldemort had a baby now. And I, I didn't always look this way. When I was in high school, I was 6'3", 140 pounds. Just as a frame of reference, I am now 6'3", 185 pounds. So subtract 45 pounds off of what you see right now and add a huge flock of seagulls sort of hairdo. I look like starving Nicolas Cage. It was, it was awful. And I would spend so much time on my hair, that's probably why I lost it all. I'd get that thing about six feet up high, whoo, swoop down eight cans of hairspray to get it like radar. It would just lock into place. It was beautiful. I'd go into my bathroom. My feet would get stuck to the floor. Bugs are down there going, help us, help us. I looked in the mirror. I hated everything that I saw. And I started going to church. And I went into Sunday school and the teacher goes, God made you. <laughs> Did he do an experiment or? <laughs> Today we try something different. We take some of this and we mix it with some of this. Oh, gross. <laughs> it took me a long time to realize God doesn't make gross things. And he didn't make something gross when he made me. And the first time I was awakened to it was by a youth pastor that stepped into my life and just said, I, I believe in you. I believe in you more than you believe in you. And I see what you could be, not what you are. And so in high school, I knew nothing. And I was the most shy, awkward kid. I was super quiet. And he said, you need to start teaching junior high Sunday school. And he threw me in. It was, I was awful. It was horrible. But he came alongside and he walked, he said, I, I, I believe in you, I got you. And I think God used him to speak something different into my future, to change my future through him. And he, he's one of the most attractive, dynamic people to me. Who's in your life that you could come alongside? I hope that it starts with your own kids. Who's in relationships that you've got? that I believe in you may be the most powerful thing that you could speak to them. I believe in you. It's a guy named Zacchaeus. It's a man short in stature. He was a tax collector and everybody hated him because he was making a profit. He was stealing from his own people. And in scripture, in Luke chapter 19, it turns out that this despised, hated little man had caught wind that Jesus was coming to town and a crowd was following him, but he was too short to see, so he had to climb a sycamore tree just to get a glimpse of this Jesus. Probably everybody's pushing him out of the way, getting back. Yeah, we don't like that guy. And he climbs up in the tree and he sees Jesus and here comes Jesus. And Jesus looks up in the tree and sees this despised, hated man that's been stealing from people. 
And he looks up and he calls him by name and says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I got to stay at your house tonight. And immediately Zacchaeus comes down. And in their culture, in their day, translated, I believe in you. I know what everybody else says about you. I know what everybody thinks about you. I know the stuff that you have done. But I see what you could be, not what you are. You and I are going to be friends. I'm going to go have a meal at your house. And it changed his life. Just that time spent of Jesus speaking hope into his future. Not only did he repay everybody that he'd stolen from, he paid them back four times as much as what he had taken in the first place. It was a game changer. And it could be for people in your life as well if you're willing to speak those words and live out that attitude of I believe in you. Everybody say, I believe in you. Last phrase, last one, fourth one. I love you. Everybody say, I love you. People need to hear that. They don't need to guess. Should be generous with those words. I'm not talking about if you're a kid and you give that, that, those words away too lightly to the girl you like or the guy that you like, but you know, maybe you didn't have it coming up as a kid. You didn't hear it enough. And it's difficult words to say, but they're very, very important words. I love you. But I want to add on something. You put a comma on there and finish this one out and it gets even more, more important. I love you, comma, even when you don't love me. You want to be incredibly dynamic, magnetic, attractive to outsiders and to people in the family of God. It's one thing to love them when they love you back. It's a whole different thing to love somebody when they don't love you. Matthew chapter five, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his encouragement was, hey, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Everybody else, he says, he says everybody else loves those that love them. That's easy to do, everybody does that, but you really wanna stand out, you really wanna be attractive, you really wanna look different, sound different, and act a whole lot like, more like Jesus, he goes on to say, hey, you, you got to love people that don't love you. Man, that's tough. That's one of the most difficult things. And yet, that will be one of those things that, that oh gosh, you do that long enough and it, it turns hearts to people. To, first to you and then hopefully to God after that. You're giving them a good, accurate picture of what this God is like. I think that's why Jesus tells one of the best stories in all of Scripture, trying to solidify for you and I a picture of what God the Father is really, truly like. In Luke chapter 15, turn there and then we're done. He tells this amazing story in Luke chapter 15 about a man who had two sons. He tells the story about a father. He says, you really want to know what God's like? You really want a glimpse of the heartbeat behind, I love you even when you don't love me? He says, I got to tell you about a story about a guy who had two sons. I got to tell you a story about a dad. The dad is supposed to look like God and the sons represent you and I. The younger son comes to the dad and says, dad, 
I know I'm going to get an inheritance from you someday, but I would rather have you dead and have your stuff. I would rather take your money than have a relationship with you. That'd be painful words to hear. And the dad goes, okay. Translated, I don't really love you that much. I would like to pretend like you do not exist. And the dad goes, okay, if that's what you really want. Throws the inheritance in the back of a truck and takes off to a distant country and blows all the cash in wild living, scripture says. And pretty soon, He's run out of money, a famine hits the land, stuff totally gets worse, he hits rock bottom. He's lost his money, he's lost his friends, and he's away from his dad. And it's a moment of deep, deep regret where he realizes, whoa, that this was an act of betrayal. I've hurt somebody. And he's hit rock bottom, and he decides the only place for me to be is back with my dad. I know I didn't act like I loved him, and I'm not so sure he loved, he's going to love me back now. But Jesus tells this story to paint the picture. He's hit rock bottom in verse 18, chapter 15. The kid says, all right, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And he did. He starts to walk. I've sinned against heaven, sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a slave. Make me a servant. He's humbled himself. Halfway through verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and pulled out a shotgun and blew his head off. Wait, that's not what yours says? <laughs> See, that's what our culture would say. No, you're not coming back here. You don't love me back. I don't love you. That's the way this game works. But that's not how God works. God says, I love you even when you don't love me back. I always love you. And this dad's going, I've been waiting for you to come home every single day. That's all I'm ready for. And look, he says, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son's still trying to get the speech out of sin against heaven, sin against you, of no longer worthy to be called your son. The dad's like, shut up. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. He looks at the kid and just goes, I'm so glad that you're home. Let's party. Get a robe and put it on him. That, that's a symbol of power. Put a ring on his finger. That's a symbol of authority. In fact, he could now go into the marketplace with that ring, the family ring, and flash the bling in the marketplace, and they would charge to the family account whatever he wanted to buy. The son that had wasted all the wealth now had the rights to go in and spend money again as a son. And then he says, and wait, last thing. We got to put sandals on his feet. We got to put shoes on the feet because only slaves go barefoot. And son, you're not a slave. You're my kid. You're my boy. And I'm just glad you're home. I know it didn't look like you loved me a while ago, but I've never stopped loving you. I love you 
even when you don't love me back. That's the heart of God. And you want to be a powerful reflection of the beauty of our God? Embrace that attitude. Use those words. I love you, even if you don't love me back. And I'm going to always love you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I believe in you. I love you no matter what. In the name of an almighty God, live that way. Speak those words. Embrace that attitude. And people will be magnetically drawn to you and you will show a watching world an accurate picture of what Jesus is actually like. Let's pray. So Father, this morning, we just thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your humility displayed to us. We thank you that you believe in us more than we believe in us, that you can change our future and speak hope into our lives. And then I can't thank you enough that you love us even when our lives don't reflect any sort of love toward you. Father, would you allow us maybe to literally speak these phrases into the lives of people that you have convicted us about here this morning? Would you allow us to live out the attitudes behind these phrases? That it would just flavor our conversation and make the most of every opportunity we've got with outsiders and also with those within the church. We respond to you now. As ushers come forward to take our tithes and offerings, we pray, Lord, that you would just use that as we give joyfully to further your kingdom. Out of the overflow of our hearts, Lord, we just respond to you now. Maybe it's you that we need to say I'm sorry to in humility. And to hear those words from you, I forgive you. And to start a relationship with you or just to correct maybe a relationship with you that's gotten sideways. We embrace this time as we wrap up here this morning with you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.